Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. Hub24 is on a mission to empower advisors to deliver better financial futures for their clients. They're dedicated to customer service excellence and delivering innovative product solutions that create value for advisors and their clients. These are just some of the reasons why advisors rate them number one for overall satisfaction and why their managed portfolio solution has been rated best in market five years running. Hub24 believes nothing happens in isolation. So they're working together with advisors, licensees, and industry leaders to leverage their data and technology expertise to help solve key challenges in the delivery of financial advice so more Australians can access cost-effective advice. Welcome back to the XY Advisor Podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and today I'm joined by Neil Younger. G'day, Neil. G'day, Fraser. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you for coming along. Now, uh, now you're, of course, uh, the, uh, what do we call you, the, the managing the director, the director of uh, Fortnum. Uh, tell us about uh, Fortnum. Yeah. Um, well, Fortnum's a financial services licensee business. Uh, today, we look after around uh, 230 advisors across 95 practices across the country. Uh, the business itself was founded in 2010 by a gentleman called Ray Miles, uh, and uh, and I guess we fit into what is affectionately termed the mid tier of licensee businesses in the in the market nowadays. Yeah, fantastic, uh, and we'll explore a little bit more about that and how that's all working uh, a little bit later. But before we go there, I just wanted to um, go back in time. Tell us about your uh, your your journey into financial services and how you sort of fell into this industry. Yeah, I think uh, we all fall in in one way, shape, or form, don't we? I, I found myself falling into AMP as the first organisation I worked for, uh, originally from Queensland, and and it was in Queensland when they used to have big state offices, uh, the Gold Tower, as it used to be affectionately uh, called, in Eagle Street in Brisbane, uh, was my first job. Uh, and literally, I was out of uni and didn't really even know who AMP was, but uh, they offered me a job and it seemed like a good place to work. Uh, it was a large insurance company and... Uh, and that was my first exposure to financial services. Um, then, of course, uh, you know, the world changed a lot. You know, we moved from um, from life insurance companies, big state offices into, you know, head offices in Sydney or Melbourne. And, uh, and I moved on from AMP uh, probably some, I think, 12, 13 years later, I moved to a company that was then called Seal Corp. Uh, that became known as Asgard Wealth Solution, which was the wealth arm of St. George Bank. And I spent uh, probably 10, best part of 10 years with uh, with that group, uh, including some of that time uh, as part of the BT group because Westpac, of course, bought St. George Bank and the wealth business got uh, subsumed into, into BT. So, so, yeah, I had a fair amount of time there. During that period, I, I moved from Queensland to Sydney 
and I moved uh, really to to get my first opportunity running a, a large licensee business, and that one was Securitor, which was of course the uh, the brand that sat within Asgard Well Solution. When the BT merger occurred, I picked up all the BT advice uh, businesses as well, uh, and uh, and then um, from there had a stepping stone into CBA. Uh, somebody career counsellor it must have been said to me you really need to have a big salary business under your under your belt uh that was a 700 planner salary channel so it ticked the big box and i did that for uh for 12 months kind of they were right in the middle of a fairly large scale remediation program wasn't necessarily what i was uh signing up for and uh, you know i got approached to come and run all the advice uh, and then subsequently distribution businesses across at anz so i i spent the the following five years or so of my career doing that. So that that sort of took a long time uh, with a lot of big institutional brands. And so the move into Fortnum from there was it was kind of a, a very different step from, you know, large senior executive roles to, to running uh, Fortnum, which at the time had only 100, 100 financial advisors, but had all the, I think, essential ingredients for what I could see was emerging in terms of the next uh, the next phase of advice and how it would operate in this market. So I was happy to uh, step out of the bank and, and certainly uh, I think uh, my decision has been vindicated in terms of, uh, of being right around where the growth, if you like, in advice segments was going to, can, going to actually happen. Yeah, fantastic. Now, you're right. It's sort of a, a journey around the block, if you like, sort of uh, three out of the big four. Well, let's say with four out of the big five, really, to be fair. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, I, I did quite a bit of work over the years uh, with Jeff Lloyd, who was at uh, NAB MLC, of course, and he used to joke with me, I've got the only card that you don't have in your wallet. So, uh, so yeah, I never have worked for National Australia Bank, but I, but I worked for the others, uh, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, and tell me that you know, like working for a big business, like say you know the CBAs of, of the world, or, or or when you're when you're looking at when you're looking after huge sort of numbers of advisors, I guess it's probably a little bit different now because you get to know every single advisor intimately uh, and and personally. Whereas in the past, it's probably a little bit difficult to know who everybody is in the in the big organisation. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that happens is, is that uh, you, you know you are you you're quite far removed from the everyday. Uh, there's a number of uh, you know operating business layers between you and the end advisor. Um, you still get the opportunity to form relationships with advisors, and I, I certainly worked actively to do so, but not to the same degree. You can't possibly know the the numbers that you, you're dealing with. I mean, my time at ANZ, there was you know 1,500 advisors in that sort of cohort. That's that's a big group to have that sort of close and personal relationship with. So, yes, moving into the, the Fortnum world and and that's far more possible. But, he, but even that said, uh, you know, we, we have staff that have day-to-day roles of engaging with advisors and helping them with their practices and so forth. Um, I'm, I'm not so involved in that hands-on stuff, but certainly uh, I would have spoken to everybody in the group. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now we're talking, uh, there's lots of different things to talk to you about. One of the things has obviously changed and you've seen a fair amount of that uh, over your time. And if we go back, uh, if we if we even go back to, say, you know, when you're in the AMP days, 
Um, I think that's probably when financial services reform came in and, and, and all this thing that we know as the corp- under the Corporations Act now uh, sort of came in. Tell us about that moment. Oh, well, it's a, it was a different time, right? Uh, I remember uh, being there when cars were introduced, not the ones that you drive, but customer advice records. Uh, and, you know, that was the, the early phases, if you like, of transitioning from what was the life insurance agent structure into uh, financial advice. And almost it felt like the shingle went up, the different shingle went up over, overnight. Uh, a lot of work had to be done underneath the surface of that, but the model very much changed with, with FSR. Uh, that agency relationship where primary responsibility was owed to the company um, turned to being about uh, know your client and doing the right thing by that client. And I think was the early stages of starting to separate product and advice. Uh, but it took a while, I think probably fair to say, until we've gone through things like the Royal Commission where we've really seen that the two um, can't fit together in the way that the industry constructed them in the past. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Uh, certainly there's been – it's been a, a large, you know, ship that's been turning over a long period of time um, and, and obviously there's a lot of change and gone with that and the old customer advice record with that. Customer information brokers, brochures, and all these sort of types of acronyms changed, of course, along the way. Um, you, you did, as you mentioned before, you did some work in the banks, and obviously there was some, um, uh, you know, remediation stuff that you mentioned. Um, you know, as it came through with um, their mm. report and, and and pointed the finger squarely at advice being, um, you know, not performing very well. That that must have been a tough uh, thing to have to try and work through for um, you know with all the planners. Yeah, it, you know, it was hard. Uh, the the first uh, major program of work was five one five, which really set um, a, a new set of expectations around what the level of advice um, accountability looked like. Uh, and also um, compelled organisations, particularly the banks, to, to look back at prior practice and reconcile the differences. Um, and, and that was both time consuming and difficult, um, but also expensive uh, to, to rectify sometimes things that were not right, sometimes for expediency, things that maybe were right uh, to, to get it to, to the requisite sort of standard. Uh, I, I think probably fair to say it's, it was that piece of work together with the Royal Commission that was the death knell for the bank's desire to be involved in in the advice businesses in the way that they were, particularly in the area of housing self-employed advisors where the revenue generated from advice was in the practice and the risk associated with getting it wrong was was at a very deep set of pockets at the centre. Yeah. I sort of relate this back to the um, – obviously, you know, that we, we've all seen how this played out, right? We, 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 knew, we know the banks left. Um, I, I, I always wonder with the uh, foreseer and the, and the difference between foreseer saying the advice provider is the human, whereas the Corps Act obviously says the company's responsible for the advice provided – so therefore, the directors and those people working in the in the company are responsible. Um, and I guess uh, I guess that was just the, like you said, the writing on the wall for the uh, for the, all the changes that took place in the ownership structure of licensing. Um, talk to us about how that sort of played out from a, you know all these businesses now moving around with licensing and, and is that settled now or is that are we still looking at a lot of changes? I think um, we're probably in in a lull period. 
before we'll see another re-emergence of the next round of activity is my sense of where we're at. So obviously in big flurry of activity as the banks uh, made their decisions, uh, CBA of course uh, closed the doors on FinWiz, transferred count out, uh, Securitor again, doors, doors closed. So a lot of people dislocated, have to find new homes, a lot of scrambling around, a lot of feeding frenzy from the remaining participants in the marketplace, offering all sorts of deals, if you like, to secure the transitioning advisors. Uh, so I think most of that has happened. And of course, you've had uh, NAB MLC more recently, and IWF and a feeding frenzy around those advisors. Uh, maybe there's another round of it with AMP um, going, going on as well. And but I think that's sort of coming to an end. People are set for a little bit. And now I think they get to step back and say, well, is this business partner I've got around licensing, uh, the things that I would like a license to help me do within my business, the right one? And am I getting the right level of value for, for the payment, particularly as any sort of that short-term discounting that we saw quite a bit of across the marketplace starts to dissipate? So I think we're in a lull, but I do think we'll see another round of activity as people kind of reset whether they made the right choice first time. Um, we're also seeing still a fair bit of activity in uh, in businesses kind of right-sizing still, just making sure that the, the advisors they're working with are the right advisors for to be working with if you're the licensee and, and vice versa. So it's being done both ways. And, uh, and that the... You know, there's the requisite uh, risk management and, and governance sort of sitting into those businesses. We're still seeing a, a number of planners exit out of mainstream into their own AFSLs. And listen, to be frank, and it's not just self-serving that I should, would say this, I, I am concerned about what that might look for for, uh, for, for many into the future. Yeah, exactly. Well, and we can get into the future stuff in a second. I just want to go back a step as well with um, – you know, with Fortnum and its journey through, obviously you were following that. Yeah. You've got to keep an eye on all the uh, all the other licensees as they're coming through, and, and obviously you uh, you know and would have relationships with all of yeah. the most of the people running those licensees. Um, tell us about uh, the the journey that uh, that Fortnum took on since uh, since Ray started yeah. in two thousand ten. So so I mean, uh, it was it was formed out of a group of advisors that had operated together under a license uh, for some time. Uh, so uh, in some cases, many uh, back to AP days, that an old business that Ray ran. So that was the foundational group that got together. They were like-minded. They were looking for a community of like-minded advisors. They were clear about what they wanted support with and the infrastructure was built to to deliver that to them. Uh, what I really came in to do was to take the business through the next phase of its growth, which was take it from that business through a corporatization journey to, uh, you know, a, a business that was the right size with the requisite scale and capability, which needed to be deeper. Um, and it wasn't deeper because of uh, any lack of desire, just it has to be resourced appropriately to do that. And uh, you need to be bigger uh, than, uh, than, than, you know, what it was at the time. So, you know, with my corporate background, you know, I had a fair bit of experience around what were the ingredients that needed to position us for the future. And 
I think the first phase of that was really putting in place the right governance frameworks, the right uh, oversight infrastructure with our advisors and the right capacity to better support them and then resource that appropriately. I think that's what then happened was that position is extremely well when the banks chose to exit. Because for a lot of advisors, they could see there was a stark difference between those that had the capability and those that didn't. And often that reflected in the price. Uh, So for many of them, they were well supported in the institutional groups they were a part of before. Even though they might have been frustrated with those institutional groups, they still got a lot of service-related support. Uh, The worst scenario, I think, for many of them was to move out of that world, be unsupported and uh, and not know where to go from there. So we we ticked a lot of boxes for a number of planner practices that were looking for, uh, you know, an an intensive support process, a full service shop, so to speak. uh, and, and, And we benefited from that. So we saw a lot of growth and we saw growth in our and our target market segment, which was for larger corporatized firms. Uh, and that's that's really been uh, the juncture of, of our growth over the last last period of time. And of course, as you keep getting bigger, you, you add more to your kit bag and your capability and you deepen and deepen those services further. And yeah, that's that's the nice position that we, uh, we find ourselves in today. But we're by no means done, right? <clears throat> we're, not, uh, we're not finished yet. Yeah, well, and certainly there's always a journey ahead. Uh, talk to us about um, the the changing revenue models in licensing, because obviously there was, you know, comes from a we come from a, a world where there was some subsidisation yeah. depending on products, and and uh, there was some support involved, whether it's educational support or all these types of things, yeah. and how that's now changed, um, and what that's done for licensing. Yeah, um, well, there's no doubt the the model, certainly the models in the banks that I was a, a part of were heavily subsidised. Um, the P&Ls of the businesses ran to a loss and they were topped up with capital to meet their requirements uh, on an annual basis. Uh, the only way that could be done uh, or the only reason that organisation would have a commercial interest is because they're making revenue somewhere else and, and as we know, that was in the product line. I think the reality is, is that uh, as the disconnect between the product and the advice became more real or the risk associated with the advice relative to the revenue attached to the product became um differentiated i think you know the the writing as we've said is on was on the wall now um you you have to wind out all of what were those subsidies to get to you know a commercially sustainable business so in the old days of course way back you used to share the revenue on platforms at licensees level well that that's been gone for some time uh so you've moved to you've seen a move very strongly to a fee for service arrangement with the planners that are part of your network, the same as they've moved to fee-for-service arrangement with their clients. Uh, and that's that's no different for Fortnum's journey. Uh, probably the journey wasn't so big for us because we had less of that revenue because we were not a product manufacturer built into our original business. Uh, we had some uh, volume-related overrides, but they were minimal by comparison to the fees that we were generating directly out of our advisors. In fact, if I reflect on the history, it's probably the reason why you know Fortnum found growing uh, to the degree that it can today harder because we were just so much more expensive than everyone because <laughs> uh, we weren't being subsidised. So the yep. playing field's a lot more even nowadays as essentially... In my view, a number of others have been forced to, to catch up to that. 
Yeah, exactly. And obviously, you need uh, you need you need numbers to make it viable, um, and then it becomes a tipping point, I guess. Uh, yeah. A lot of fixed costs in what? these businesses, uh, you know, and in terms of of the governance frameworks, the infrastructure, and so forth, they're not they're not inexpensive to run. And you know, I also think licensees get criticised for spending a lot of money that they shouldn't need to spend on compliance, for example. Um, having been through the process of engaging with the regulator in circumstances where you're deemed to have got it wrong, trust me, it's a worthwhile investment. Yes, exactly right. Uh, looking back, it's always the, uh, you know, once the event's already taken place, it's very easy to point fingers and say, well, that, you know, could have been fixed up. But at the time, you've got to be thinking forward, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, now, talk to us about the optimum size, because both I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to the advice business in a second, but the optimum size of a licensee, yeah. because you mentioned sort of you know growing to that that right size, that right business right size. What, what do you think it is for a licensee? Yeah, so it's, it's funny when I first joined Fortnum, I, I thought uh, an optimal size for Fortnum was sort of circa 400 advisors, around 200 practices was kind of the. I don't want to say back of the envelope, but you kind of have a view in your mind about what's what makes economic sense as you project forward, and, and that was a number I had uh, in my head. Um, I, I don't think I've moved away from that number, but where I've probably varied my view is, is the number of practices versus the number of advisors. So um, in Fordham today, we have about 2.5 advisors for every practice, uh, which by industry standards at a licensee sort of above 200, that's a pretty pretty good ratio. But I think that will continue to get larger. Uh, and we're seeing that with consolidation of practices, the removal of, of a lot of smaller uh, advisory practices where there may have only been one advisor to a far more practice-level corporatized structure. And, and that's certainly how, how we've positioned. So I've become less fixed on numbers and, and more fixed on on uh, you know the the revenue profile of the business and the and the service proposition we can deliver to larger businesses is really I think the pathway for our continued growth. But, yep. but if you ask me for a number, I still say you know look it's probably still at four hundred advisors, but maybe it's now one hundred and fifty practices. Yep, and it's of course built on a whole lot of experience of, of uh, running different size licensees. Talk to me about this um, this corporatized structure of the practice because I think it's it's a really interesting point for a lot of the listeners of this show. Yeah. Uh, you know, if they're a one person um, business, um, then is that less attractive from a licensee? You know, to, from from working with and partnering with a licensee uh, versus if they were to join two or three smaller practices, individual practices together to create that corporate business. Yeah, I, look, I think um, the analogy I use when I get asked questions like this is I say, well, you know, if you're a one uh, person band and you set up a business, uh, if you did an org chart and you said, here's all the roles and responsibilities that fit on that org chart, I've got one name to stick in every box, right? Well, the reality is it's pretty hard for you to be effective in every single one of those boxes. You know, I'm head of marketing, I'm head of planning, para planning, I'm head of, uh, you know, everything, you know, CFO, um, it's, it's really difficult. So the reality is, is that as you get bigger, you can find yourself being able to put multiple names in those boxes in the org chart. And, and I think that affords you the opportunity to get better at executing each of those individual tasks and better as an organisation as a result. So I do think there is value to scale that comes out of um, out of a business getting larger and having within it more functional 
capabilities. And and that's that's so when I talk about corporatization, the last thing I want people to think about is is it being a bureaucracy. There's a reason I don't work for a bank today. I well, I know what bureaucracy is, right? Um, it's not about that, but it's about structure and the discipline that comes with running a business. And I do think there is um, a difference between being a self-employed financial advisor than being a person that's part of a financial planning business. And that corporatization is a pathway to extracting that value. And I think if I look at it then through a risk lens, um, I say, well, you know, to do everything that a planner is required to do today, tick every box that's not, he's going to keep them safe. It's a big job, right? To do that all themselves is is risky. Uh, to have an infrastructure with the appropriate level of capability and expertise, I think, is is just becoming more of a, a necessary ticket to the game. And that's why I think a lot of licensees have started to move away from you know the one person band, if you like that kind of stereotypical shingle, but because maybe they, they just don't have the capacity to do everything that uh, that they need to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And th- with regards to the, the size or the level of that practice, um, you know, if we were to start a new practice today from scratch with no, you know, uh, nothing in, in place, what's what, what would the target be? What would the target of amount? Is it four, four, four advisors or is it – what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, if I look at it down through a revenue lens, I'd say you've got to be aiming at a $3 million revenue line. Um, and and I think then you start to say, well, well, in terms of capacity to service that revenue at a planner level, how many planners do I need, right? Uh, I think the reality there we're seeing is is that the average client that advisors are, are dealing with are, are higher in value because the costs are so high for the delivery of the advice. So the numbers of, of clients per planner are coming down and the revenue profile, therefore, per planner is able to, to, to increase. But for a $3 million business, you are talking about four, probably five advisors attached to a business of that size. Now, I will, uh, you know, like I don't want to offend people when I say this three, because often you do. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can't run a successful business with a million dollars worth of revenue. It doesn't. Like, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you're responding to, you know, what I sense is is kind of uh, the optimised or the business model that is becoming more prevalent in the marketplace as businesses go through consolidation phases. And I think that number's a, a realistic one to, to at least draw a line and sand, put it on table. You know, I, I think it's a really interesting conversation because it actually does form sort of form someone's future view of how they might want to mould their business over time. Um, and obviously business valuations are a big part of that um, conversation. And so if that's if that $3 million revenue with, you know, is, is an attractive business for licensing, it's probably also attractive for their business valuation. I, I see this a lot in valuation uh, conversations. If I think back 10 years ago, the only metrics you wanted to understand was what was recurring revenue and how many how many clients do you have, right? They were pretty much the two metrics. Now, now the DD is far more detailed, right? What's the service proposition? How, what's the value you're capturing per client? What's the uh, service to variant levels of revenue attached to your clients? So the, the, the detailed understanding, what's the risk governance frameworks? What's the checks and balances uh, that are put in place? So very much you've got um, a corporatized view of valuation being applied to the acquisitions because it's just not an aggregation model anymore. 
So if your business can't answer those questions, then by default, you're going to have less sitting on the other side of that transaction. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, certainly the old days of selling your business based on multiple of, uh, of revenue. That, that, that's, surely that's gone by now. Yeah, I mean, still people back solve against that. But, uh, yeah, uh, I, I've seen a, a, a massive change in mindset over the last couple of years where people really are looking for the value attributes and more traditional valuation methodology where they're applying synergistic values to to the underlying uh, calculations as opposed to just looking at more revenue, <laughs> one lever. Yep, yeah. What's, what's, how do you see um, data or structured data playing a, a part in the valuations? Uh, critical. Uh, how well you know your business is, is, is critical. Um, how that data is, is uh, secured. And what intelligence you can extract off that data, I think, is um, is probably the next phase that we. I'm not sure we've really monetized yet, but we 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 will monetize it. Um, but if you can't produce detailed records on your business and understanding of the economics that drive client interactions and profitability, and then you're on your back on the back foot. Yep. Yeah. Um, talk to us about, um, and off, probably off the back of that data conversation, how has compliance changed over that time yeah. and, and where is it going in the future? Yeah, so um, you know, compliance traditionally has been um, reactive, of course. The main weapon in the compliance arsenal was audit. Uh, I think the reality is if you're relying exclusively on audit as a function to meet your supervision and, and, uh, and management obligations, then you're, you're probably going to fall short. So data is, is a critical component to real time or at least uh, preemptive type of supervision and monitoring. And, uh, and businesses like ourselves do a lot of that. Uh, we have centralized databases, we have KRIs attached to that database information, and we use it to inform. Now, we don't use it because we want to find that somebody's done something wrong. <laughs> we use it to make sure organizationally we identify issues before they become you know, raging bushfires that you can't put out. Yeah, exactly. And the, uh, the key risk indicators can certainly do that. So, um, so that's I guess the uh, the idea of um, you know again looking back and looking now, how can technology or, or, or compliance evolve to the space where it's actually helping um, advisors provide advice before the advice is provided? Yeah, I think there's quite a bit of progress in that area. I'll just take uh, breach reporting for example. Most recently, it's just changed. Come in, the new regs have come in in October. Uh, so, you know, there's so many mapped um, outcomes that trigger a breach notification under the new rules as it, as it uh, maps back against Corps Act obligations. Uh, they in themselves are too onerous for any single advisor to kind of check balance that. So how do you use technology and embed, if you like, that workflow where it identifies proactively whether if I do this, I probably will get to the end of the journey and realise I've got something that I'm going to have to breach on, right? Prevention rather than than cure becomes the 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 mindset. So so businesses like us are investing and continue to invest in that type of capability to help ensure that um, that essentially it's a digital checklist rather than a paper based checklist, but it's inter it's integrated into the the process. One of the real challenges we have, which is being frank about this, is is that um, everyone likes to do everything their own way. <laughs> so it's. Um, you know, in some regard, 
there's not a lot of value uh, in terms of, of unique differentiators for compliance. <laughs> so I'm not sure that's necessary uh, to really be thinking that way. But, you know, the more you can homogenize some of these processes, the more you can be pretty clear that they're safe. Yep. And, and what would you consider compliance? Um, just to probably the last one on compliance, to be one of the, the main services of a, of a licensee? Oh, absolutely. Like I think, um, you know, if I think about the work effort in our business to synthesize uh, consent, DDO, breach reporting and so forth, you know, if that was done across the 95 odd practices in our business with the requisite legal advice to make sure they've got everything right, um, <laughs> It's just worth spent a fortune, right? It's overwhelming as it is when it's distilled down into what do you actually have to do. So absolutely, I think it's a critical component, but it's the foundation component for what you build a business on. You know, when I talk to good businesses, they don't worry about compliance. They just that's what we have to do as part of our job. And that's the mindset we enjoy working with. It's not something we're imposing upon you. It's something we have to deal. It's a ticket to the game to do the job the way it needs to be done. And then it's now about making that as as efficient as possible as it integrates into, into the process. It's not the enemy. It's just part of the requirements. Yep. I, I, I don't have any evidence of this, but I sort of feel like the the licensing is being re- the the middle's being taken out, and we're going to end up with self licensed, you know, small practices, or we're going to end up with these, you know, the larger groups like yourself. There, you know, let's say three, four hundred uh, advisors or, or, or a couple hundred practices. I think there's a danger to that, right? Um, and you know, I, I see this in terms of uh, some of the rhetoric in more recent times. Licensees are the ones that are creating the impost around compliance and governance. Uh, like I think certainly in the institutional world, your risk uh, uh, tolerance level, particularly as you're going through all commission and 515 is quite low. So they did set the bar relatively low and they said uh, everyone's got to jump over that. Uh, that um, I think that led to a lot of perception that they created the problem. Uh, their response probably did in some regard. But I'm not sure that's necessarily the case for what remains in the sector today. In fact, to the very point I made before, making people do the same task we've just done at a licensee level 90 times has to be more inefficient than having it done once, right? And therefore, cost should reflect that in how businesses operate. What I worry about with the way you've described the polarisation occurring is is that, um, one, you could end up with a very homogenised model at the big end, and and that's not where we certainly will go, Uh, and you could end up with a a lot of people just missing the mark at the other end, and not because they're deliberate about it, but just because they just won't have the requisite expertise or, or scale to get these things done efficiently. And, and some of them will adopt an I'm out of sight, out of mind approach and just not do them. And I do worry, based upon as an industry, how much work we've had to do to prove, for many people, they didn't need to, to prove professionalism and that they did care about their clients firstly. Um, I don't want to find ourselves going through the second phase of that because people have uh, let themselves down with regard to their obligations. And that's what I do get yep. concerned about for, for the future. Um, and, again, it's not necessarily out of intent. It's just they'll, they'll, they'll not have the expertise. Yeah, just the sheer amount of things that need to be or tick boxes that need to be ticked and things that need to be done. 
Yeah. Well, I just know how much I invest in uh, those things. <laughs> and, and I just, I, you know, I so worry about how they can, can get to them without being significantly distracted away from the other areas of that org design that I talked about before. They could be focusing their time and energies on for a better return. Yep. Now that probably leads us into the professional indemnity conversation. Yep. You've obviously seen some changes over the years with the, the PO insurance. Um, talk to us about where it's come from, where it's going, and, and and what the prospects are looking forward with PO. Yeah, it's been hard. Like uh, you know, the uh, the PO insurers got very nervous uh, with with claims or potential claims through that five one five phase, and whilst a lot of that remediation was related to fee for no service, that didn't itself create a PI claimable event, refunding unpaid, uh, you know, unserviced fees. Uh, the costs associated with the mediation program certainly are claimable. Uh, so I think the Australian market insurance got very nervous about that. Uh, parallel that to where a lot of capacity was provided to Australia was a set of organisations like Lloyds of London, uh, and they were going through their own um, changes structurally within that market. Uh, they were limiting capacity around insurance, and you end up with this, uh, you know, the, the worst of all worlds as a lack of supply, uh, um, nervousness about those that are supplying, and, uh, and the consequence was exclusions, reduction in the quality of the cover, and significant increases in the, uh, in the price point. So, you know, standing start, you know, the, the conversations for most groups is 30% up on premiums, even environments where you've had no claims. So, And that's that tends to be 30% every year, the, yeah, what it seems. It, it is. And, uh, and I think uh, that's probably going to continue for a little while longer. But we're starting to see when I talk with our, our brokers and we have, you know, a composition of Australian and international broke, um, insurers on our, on our panel and um, – we're starting to see some interest emerging now back in the UK around insurers. So, so I think we're starting to see the early stages of maybe that pendulum might swing back a little bit, uh, but it's been a painful experience. Um, and and I think uh, you know there's there's certain pockets that have felt that more than others. You know, as I said, for an organisation like ourselves, you know, our claims experience is exceptionally good. Our risk and governance we can demonstrate in a lot of detail. It gives insurers a lot of comfort. The less you can do of those things, the the more difficult it is. And, and you know, it's I was in the UK on PI only two years ago. It's probably just before we couldn't travel anymore. And uh, and you know there were plenty of war stories from uh, from the the Londoners about people jumping on planes to come in begging for insurance, otherwise their license was gone. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So um, you know the 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 fact that you need it, and then we only ended up with what a couple left. Is that is that what we got? Yeah, to? you pretty much have had no insurer in the Australian market taking on new business, which means uh, it's going out of musical chairs and the the it's stopped, and you're sitting in the same seat, right? So you you're getting what you're getting as far as a, an increase is concerned. Um, there are pockets that are getting insured, and. I think there's a bit of false security around this because some of the smaller AFSLs are picking up insurance. The insurance is being framed on a, on a low perception of risk because their businesses are small, right? Where I think the danger here is, is that one claim and they won't get renewal terms because the claim relative to the premium will knock them out. And that's where I think there's some short-term dis- sort of dis- disturbances in the, in the model that will probably wash their way through in the next little while. 
Yeah, fantastic. It'd be good to see it uh, coming, coming back towards the centre. And making sure we've got the right levels of cover, I think, Fraser, is critical, right? Because, um, you know, not all covers are equal. And uh, you only know that sometimes when you go to claim. And we've got compensation scheme of last resort coming into, into bear, and that just creates a burden on the system for everyone else to cover. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Now, uh, and you're absolutely right about the uh, reading the policy documents because uh, you know, sometimes the policy wording makes a big difference, <laughs> and we all know that, but we don't read them. Um, how, how does the uh, the independent conversation come into with licensing? Obviously, there's you know we, it's been predominantly most people just stay away from the term because uh, because it's it's easier than trying to work it out. Has it ever been something that you guys looked at or considered? Yeah, it's it's hard um, because say for example, um, life insurance commission, which is still a legitimate way to be charging for services in the insurance space. The moment you have that, you can't pass that independence test, right? Uh, so so on the basis of that alone, we've never sought to, to push that path. Actually, in mind, the update to the legislative requirement where you can disclose, well, I'm not independent, but define why, because I'm not sure you're necessarily unable to evidence you can still operate in the client's best interest because you happen to be remunerated by an insurance methodology uh, in the insurance space, for example. That does make sense to me. Yeah, I think uh, I think you'll probably win a few friends with that one because I think most people are in the same boat. Not really, uh, not, doesn't really compute too well. No, um, uh, but it is what it yeah, is. Yeah, it's you know, it's a very prescriptive uh, process, of course, as to how they disclose all that to their clients. But you know, if it opens up the conversation, I think most uh, fair-minded people realise that that doesn't equal conflict. Yep. Now you've done a lot of work with the Financial Services Council over the yeah. years. Tell us about uh, tell us about that. Yeah, certainly in my time at the the banks, I was heavily involved in the uh, advice uh, board at the FSC. So not so since I, I left uh, ANZ, of course, and moved in into Fordham, but uh, I still remain uh, pretty close to a number of participants on on that uh, that board today and the work that they're doing. And of course, there's quite a collaborative um, interaction amongst a number of licensees uh, where where many of us these days now are ex-institutional uh, groups and uh, and we've, we know each other, of course. And there are quite a bit of collaboration that we do in areas that make sense for the collective good of the industry. Um, you know, we, we're active in input to Treasury or to ASIC uh, or to government, directly to the, to the Minister, uh, arguing for things that are just pragmatic, certainly off the thematic of accessibility of advice. Yeah, fantastic. Um, now, with with the licensing these days, I think uh, you know a lot of the. I want to go. I want to talk about the professional year, and I was sort of thinking yeah. about it from a practice point of view. Uh, you know, obviously that three million dollar revenue practice with mm. a three or four advisors, great for that professional year candidate to come in. Um, you know, provides enough structure. What What are you doing from the licensee point of view to sort of develop the professional? Yeah, year? Yeah, so we we actually had the first advisor complete their professional year uh, in Fordham. It was one of our uh, financial planning practices. Um, came in with a plan that just started and, and we helped uh, facilitate that piece. So, you know, we bought, we built the capability to um, supervise. So there's two layers of supervision, obviously the framework the practice uses to guide uh, that new person through the process. And then, of course, all the checks and balances that get done by the licensee to assist. So, so we developed all of that. I, I think one of the challenges for us, though, is capacity. Uh, so it's quite an intensive program of work that a person must undertake. 
Uh, so that's that necessitates a lot of support at the practice level and then, again, a, a, an equal measure level of support at the licensee level. The question is how many of those can you put through the pipe every year? And I think for the moment that's that's quite limited. Uh, and, and we, so for example, we go out to our network and say, who wants to bring a, somebody through their professional year? Give us the heads up now so we can kind of map or plan the work effort associated with those those candidates over the year. So I think this is a gap the industry's got collectively is how do we find more efficient ways? Because a lot of that heavy lifting was done by the institutional groups, being people through their salaried networks and so forth, and it's not there any longer. So I think collectively we have uh, some some ways to go to solve that as an industry. Yeah, exactly right. Because you know, literally thousands of people a year could have been coming through the um, tr- through those banks or that system that now doesn't exist. Yep. Uh, and as you mentioned, the pipe is not that wide for the for the professional year candidates. And uh, you know, we could end up with a shortage of uh, of advisors for many years to come with it. Yeah, well, we've got both sides of that uh, equation, right? So a lot of exiting planners. We've seen those numbers falling off, and there's more to come, of course. Uh, and and you're right, a uh, bottleneck getting people in at the pace. Um, so those larger practices have the capacity to absorb that cost because they'll have the capacity to benefit from the investment. Uh, smaller practice, uh, they struggle with that, right? It's uh, it's a long uh, it's a long time before they get back to right sizing the cost associated with that investment. Yep. Uh, now tell us about Fortnum. Why? Why is how, how do you you know how how are you different and 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 what do you sort of bring to the um, to the market? Oh, look, I think the th- where, where we're different is um, we're not distracted about anything. We we are uh, an advice license that provides services to independent financial advisors. Uh, so it, we think about every day what is it that advisors need to to have at their disposal to be able to leverage a good outcome for their end clients. And in that sense, uh, that's where we remain focused. And and I think that's that's what makes a difference. I think the second thing that's that's really um, unique about us is is getting the right people together in the room. So a lot of people talk about community, but if you want to be a successful business, then hang out with successful businesses. Now, I, I, I like to say we put a lot of effort into making sure we're working with successful businesses, but it, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once you get a few of them, more of them come. <laughs> so so I think that's what's unique about us as well is, is we've, got, we've got people in a cultural sense that really actively want to engage with each other uh, and and that creates that right type of communities. They're, they're the two, I think, key differentiators. I always argue we do all that stuff well, but but I think ultimately, uh, you know, being well supported by your peer network as well as the organisation is critical. And an organisation that's not distracted is uh, is is critical. I think I call it alignment. Yeah, wonderful. So to talk to me about the future of uh, licensing. Um, you know, I've always had this uh, view, um, you know, that it could well be, it could be all something that can become extinct over time. You know, obviously I think um, when I think of um, FSR coming in, I, I kind of think there was probably a, an assumption that most advisors would be self-licensed um, on ASICs or, uh, or the government's schedule. Uh, and it sort of has never happened that way, but, is this something, is licensing is something that could become extinct? I think it could be in its current form because 
common sense says uh, the advisor's providing the advice and I'm taking responsibility for it. Well, it's not particularly a sound logical model, right? Uh, the question is, um, how does the advisor take responsibility for it? So what's the gap around governance if you decentralise to that degree? I think that's the thing that's on the mind of, of Treasury as they look about and look at the future of advice reform, the next phase, is, is that today there is, whether it's considered a desirable, uh, there, there is a function provided by licensees that interposes between their responsibility and the advisor. Um, that has to be replaced. And it just doesn't go away. You know, we don't have no requirement for compliance because the licensee isn't there. Uh, so who takes on that burden and responsibility and, and ensures it gets discharged properly? So I think we're a ways away from the inevitable, but I do think the inevitable will occur where um, the licensee structure that we see today will, will disappear. We, we don't fear that. You know, our, our, our model is about enabling advice. It's not about um, adding cost to the process. Those costs exist anyway. I think it just morphs uh, into, a, into a different style structure. And then you start to look at, well, what are the other value points that you add as part of the community? In our world, for example, we, we aggregate considerable value in terms of even product pricing, which is all wholesale, but we negotiate on scale. Well, we can do that. That's 100% passed through consumer benefit. So there's a lot of other things that licensees or that collective, whatever it ultimately ends up being called, I think add considerable value to. Yeah, because we're seeing a bit of a trend towards a collective as well for self-licensed. Even if you're self-licensed, you still join a bit of a collective and be part of a, a group in some way where this sort of thing can take place. I just don't. What I say is is that, you know, what's the right scale the way you start to optimise and – you know, even even my experience in this business, you're running a business with uh, you know a hundred advisors. It's very different. Your options around what you can do are very different to say what they are today. Um, so so you know, same parallel into a planning practice. You know, there's there's more you can do when you are bigger, as long as you stay focused on the right things. Yep, fantastic. Uh- uh, thanks so much for coming on and chatting us to it today, Neil. Uh, tell us about how advisors can reach out and, or, or chat to you if they want to continue the conversation. Oh, sure. Um, well, obviously, you can come to our website, um, au, or, or reach out to, to any member of our team, um, obviously myself. Uh, you'll find me on LinkedIn or, or attached to that website uh, or, or even talking to people within our business like Rob Skinner, who I think has spoken on your program most recently, Heads Out practice management function but uh, no we're, we're only too happy to help and so we're, we're not about recruiting advisors for the sake of recruiting we're actually about finding the right relationships and fits so if that ends up being the case then it is fantastic thank you neil all right thank you